0: Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On the first segment of today's show, I'll be joined by New Haven Independent staff writer Alan Appel for a review of The Lost City of Z, a new movie from director James Gray that looks at the life of Percy Fawcett, a real life British explorer, cartographer, and artillery officer who made several expeditions to the Brazilian Amazon in the first quarter of the 20th century before mysteriously disappearing as one does in the heart of what the British Empire referred to as the green desert or the green hell of the Amazon jungle. Uh, on the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by Lyric Hall's Joe Fay and filmmaker Laura Coella to talk about two movie-related events that will be taking place at Lyric Hall in Westville this weekend. This Saturday, we'll see Magnetic Fest 2, a VHS swap meet and screening day organized by Fay. And this Sunday, we'll see a screening of Coella's 2012 indie comedy Breakfast with Curtis, Followed by a conversation with the filmmaker and the cast, but first, I'm very happy to welcome back to the show, Alan Appel. Alan is a staff writer for the New Haven Independent, uh, and will be helping me chat about the Lost City of Z. Alan, welcome back.
1: Hi, Tom. Z <laughs> Z Z Z, Z. <laughs> uh,
0: Very profound. I'm <laughs> looking forward to the other 25 letters Z, of the alphabet <laughs> later. <laughs> the... Or they, as they say, as they say in the movie, Z. Ah, yes, right. This is a British film, after all. Um, okay, so based on a 2009 nonfiction book by New Yorker staff writer David Gran, The Wasadoo Z follows or falls within a, a well worn subgenre in the history of adventure films the white man's journey upriver into the heart of the jungle in search of conquest, glory, intended knowledge of the world around him, and unintended knowledge of himself. Uh, Apocalypse Now, of The Wrath of God, and last year's Embrace of the Serpent all represent kind of different variations on this conceit, each applying enough sustained pressure on the protagonist as his journey progresses to demonstrate the incredible hubris, insanity, and futility of such enterprises. Um, but I think what distinguishes The Lost City of Z, to my mind at least, uh, is how surprisingly straight Grey plays it as he follows his flawed hero back and forth across Europe and Amazonia in the early 20th century— Yes, the adventures of Percy Fawcett, played by Charlie Hunnam, offer plenty of fodder for criticism of the racism, classism, and hypocrisy of the British Empire. But I think the overwhelming impression that this movie gives uh is over the course of its 2 plus hour runtime is that there's something kind of tragically poetically noble about the era of the amateur explorer. Here's a man who sacrificed everything, his family, his career and even his life in pursuit of a lost city of culture and civilization that he thought would bring mankind a bit closer to empathy or bring himself a bit closer to an understanding of his natural and social environment. So Fawcett in this story at least, is uh, romantic and an artist, however unrequited. So, Alan, as you watch The Lost City of Z, did you find yourself yearning for more adventure into the heart of the jungle alongside Fawcett and his crew? Or were you ready to hang up your walking stick and maybe take a pass on this next trip to El Dorado?
1: Mm, no, I think you really put it in, in the right context. I really wanted to, to like this movie, I think, more than I did because uh, I love all its antecedents. And, um but i i think for i think for me the the uh you cited sort of what what two what two of the problems are well there are a lot of there are a lot of problems with this movie and but there's a lot of good stuff also i think uh i think the window that it does open on um you know the uh the 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 tail end of the victorian eras trying to uh check out the last savages among us and uh you know how the the old guard and a wonderful scene in the film says, uh, "Why are you doing this, uh, Percy? Uh, can, can I, can, do you imagine savages in Westminster Abbey?" And of course, he does. But my problem is that is that um, to make this kind of thing credible, especially in this film, which is different from Apocalypse Now, and even uh, I was thinking of one of my favorites, you know, King Kong, uh, where they go with Fay Ray, is that. This is not one single expedition. This is essentially like twenty years or a man's whole lifetime. three or four or five expeditions from his first one uh culminating in the one in which he dies with his son so in in many ways it in order for the adventure genre and, and the the you know the pursuit of the unknown or the romanticism or or whatever the motivation is to work and we can talk about if that motivation is somehow um credible or carried through. The problem is that On some level, it's a biopic uh, struggling to be an adventure film.
0: And, you know, that that is an interesting line of critique on this. I I actually um, that was one of the parts of the movie that I maybe appreciated most in that. This movie, I mean, James Gray has spoken in interviews about this movie about his admiration for the films of David Lean, the oh, Dr. Shivago, yeah. Lawrence of Arabia, um, these kind of grand historical epics that do take place over, you know, decades. This isn't just one adventure up river, but rather an exploration of these kind of themes and ideas that exist uh, in certain kind of important historical epics. And, yes, the, and yes. it's the way that, you know, we were talking about a, a pretty mediocre movie last year called the free state of Jones with Matthew McConaughey. That was kind of a, a civil war and reconstruction era drama. And even though we were kind of mixed on the actual execution of the movie, I think we both appreciated the ambition of that story and trying to tackle, you know, decades in the life of someone who experienced, you know, all of these different eras in the history of slavery. I herself. think that applies to this. Exactly. And, and so I, I think, I think that uh, this is. Uh, not a biopic in that it doesn't chart um, Faucett's life from from birth to death. It, it starts with a specific moment in his professional career, maybe the nadir of his professional career, and that he's looking to rehabilitate himself. He's he's actually he, he's introduced to us as ostensibly over the hill already. He's he's relatively old among his group of officers, and he's looking for some way to redeem his uh, kind of patrilineal inheritance, which is one of I guess shame and and uh, alcoholism, and he's. Sees uh, these adventures to the Amazon as a way to both redeem himself and his family, but also completely kind of purge himself of the necessity of proving himself to this world. Well, you are Empire. so
1: generous in in your psychological <laughs> understanding. So um, I, I think more than that, I think the, you provide more than the movie. Well, be, be, because in that initial scene, which indeed does take place in 1905, when he's leading a bunch of younger officers in some sort of fox hunt or deer hunt. He outrides them and outshoots them and comes back with the prize, but what his issue is is that he's going to be embarrassed to go to the ball with his beautiful wife, played by Sienna Miller, who's always nice to look at. And, oh, I and, thought she
0: was wonderful. in this She was movie wonderful. As well. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But but he he says to her, "I have no medals," and and so uh, it, it, as the movie progresses, it really. Uh, for me one of the the, the issues is uh, what is his motivation well what does he say do
0: immediately after i have no medals he tells his wife i know this is ridiculous like he recognizes that the pursuit of you know recognition from one's superiors just for the sake of recognition from one's superiors is something that he, you know, he knows is not like a meaningful form of validation in his life. And yet he exists within the social structure where he feels both pressure simultaneously, the pressure to explore and also the pressure to, you know, there are certain people, I think he finds that He is by no means as looked down upon as the, you know, the native South Americans that he goes adventuring with. But he is of a um, both of and not of this cast of this kind of imperial group.
1: That's true. And I I really wish the movie had carried on the sense of conflict that he has, because at a a later point I wrote down in my extensive notes here. uh, Somebody asks him at some point in one of the beginning of the adventures, what did you hope to achieve out there? And his answer is, I don't know. And it, it's a kind of I don't know that, unfortunately, is really I don't know. So I, get, uh, you <laughs> so know, that was my that was my issue. What what drives him? Uh, you know, uh, I I just wish I had that feeling that you get from you know Martin Sheen or uh, Brando or Klaus Kinski or <laughs> any of any of <laughs> those guys. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, he he says all the right things, but the. He he he's noble only when he stands up in a kind of cartoonish way to the cliches of the upper crust guys in the Royal Geographic. Society. But you know
0: what? I think that I mean, if Martin Sheen's character in Apocalypse Now is a bit of a kind of a blank cipher, just waiting to be written upon by the horrors of the movie, and then if Klaus Kinski is already this like megalomaniacal figure who's looking to dominate the, the Amazon, I think that um, Charlie uh, Hunnam's character here is pretty similar to Omar Sharif and Dr Zhivago and that Sharif also spouts you know plenty of platitudes and that he's a romantic figure he doesn't know you know what he wants to do with it he's a doctor he's a poet he kind of wants both the scientific and the artistic world he's in love all the time i mean these are uh, these are kind of grand aspirations that he's not quite capable to wrap his arms around entirely cuz he doesn't really understand you know what why um, you know how could someone with such great personal ambitions have to rein all of those in for any particular kind of historical society in which they exist.
1: But he's driven to write the great poem. He's sort of following, uh, he's fol- following war and beauty to write the great poem. This guy uh, remains confused or, or maybe hmm. one of the issues is uh, it's so it's uh, allied with this is maybe it's a question of lugubrious acting.
0: I think that's because, where I'm falling
1: because, to. Because, because in many ways what you say is all there in more in potential than in reality I, I I just find him wooden when he deals with his conflicts about uh, his many returns uh, home and you know um, he doesn't spend time with his kids he's wooden with his wife it's almost as if he he you know if I was psychologizing this Wait, film the mic a bit. if I was psychologizing okay. this film I would say that um, he He's just like an adolescent who, you know, got himself into the required family life, and he just wants to have adventures.
0: So I never like to, you know, blame actors or actresses for my response to a movie, because almost always it's a matter of the dialogue that they're given or the character art that they're given. But I do think that, you know, Charlie Hunnam is not an actor of the same caliber required to be the anchor for a movie like this. Well,
1: I read that (laughs) um, it was originally given to Brad Pitt. Who, oh, who, who, who who turned it down? Uh, the reason he gave is scheduling reasons, which you know could also mean. Mm, this. Well, I, and right, Benedict right.
0: Cumberbatch he also, was also the one who who was kind of a vision to fit this role, but for scheduling reasons, he took right. rejected
1: He's he's a guy that I think could could somehow communicate these issues. Uh, the, uh, Charlie Hunnam is um, he's just too wooden, it seems to me. Uh, uh, I don't know. He didn't feel it.
0: Gray said that one of the things that attracted him to Hunnam as an actor is that he is, one, an incredibly handsome guy, and he's an aspiring actor, aspiring, like, great actor, but someone who is not quite at that level of the Brad Pitt's and Benedict Cumberbatches, and that feeling of kind of always being jilted, of never quite being good enough for, like, the, you know, the major leagues is what he thought was, you know, defined Percy Fawcett as a character. And Mm. I it's it's tough to draw that much of a parallel between what you see in an actor and a character because great actors can do a variety of things, including looking jilted. I don't know if Hunnam is quite up to to that. But I think what we see in Sienna Miller's performance as the wife is the true tragedy of the story. And I don't know how much, you know, spoiler territory we want to go into, but for a movie that plays it relatively straight, um, both in terms of narrative and cinematographically over the course of the movie, I found the closing shot of this movie to be absolutely stunning and perfect. I don't know if you remember it, but it's after the wife has... um, Brought the token com- brought to- the compass to right. the member of the Royal Geographical Society, but then mm-hmm. she descends the stairwell and we see in the reflection of the mirror, this is spoiler territory, but we see if you know, she's in this Victorian townhouse, she's exiting the building, and what does she exit to? Not the busy streets of London, but she walks into the middle of the jungle. And I thought the to see that in the reflection of the mirror, to see her completely consumed by the fantasy of her husband at the very end of the movie was... A mind-blowing moment. Unfortunately, yeah. there weren't many moments weren't, like that. <laughs> there weren't
1: many, but the but the the, the potential for the delusional is very yeah. high here. You know, in many ways, I was disappointed with some of the um, the plot choices because a uh, third of the way through, she uh, she really uh, puts it to him that she wants to return on his third or fourth expedition, and he turns to her and he says, "You will." There are bugs all the time. There are dangerous snakes. Um, uh, and then she gives a good suffragist gender speech, and he replies that 's all true. I agree with you you're equal. We have a you know a par- apparently their marriage was such that you know they made a deal she would live her life he his, but he says physically she 's not up for it, and she doesn 't go. I wish she had gone it would have made it it would have made it very interesting. I will say in terms of movie making one of the things that really impressed me about this, and i don 't know what you think about this, but um, it seemed to me like uh, very dark. Uh, which I guess is the point when they're going into the darkness. But I thought in covering all this biographical territory, to get back to the original kind of challenge of the biopic, his transitions were beautiful. Uh, Very, very quick transitions from uh, the starch-shirted civilization at the Geographic Society and suddenly... They're, you know they're slapping bugs on the raft in the river and, they were quite wonderfully done
0: you know i I think that if we are to you know credit Charlie Hannon's performance with anything I think he manages those transitions beautifully too because he undergoes quite the physical transformation I mean both in terms of like his facial hair he certainly becomes a lot more kind of haggard and sunburned and scraggly to, you know the more times that he goes to the jungle um, and also you can see the kind of gaps beneath his eyes deepening as he ages I mean this these adventures are really wearing on him and yet he only seems to increase in his almost like childlike anticipation of the next adventure and so as we see his body almost kind of deteriorating we both maturing and deteriorating, we see him you know all the more excited and idealistic about getting back to what he thinks is this kind of lost great city of culture and right, but he
1: doesn't know what he's doing at, the, at a certain point he's 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 just he's just glazed in days and i say glazed this is real spoiler alert when I describe him as glazed, because, uh, uh, can we say this? Well, I don't know. Uh, It is a spoiler alert. Go away if you want to really see this movie. But this is the only, this is really quite an incredible final scene, uh, or the penultimate scene, um, because they do get captured in the end. And, um, uh, And by the way, his ability to translate Spanish and indigenous languages quite phenomenal he, must he has him.
0: a dictionary on the boat over he has over a
1: dictionary his. and he probably and he probably went to a good public school and didn't go to cambridge <laughs> or Eton or those places they so he picked it up on the streets of london but he do, they do end up getting cooked he and his son get cooked by the cannibals and he gives he, he bucks his son up he says gives tells his son to have courage but you know this is going to happen there are some sort of a seeds planted as it were uh with a potion that the 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 local indians use to stun the fish and it's the potion that they are given after a scene in which the chief says i want to see what his spirit is like and we have learned in previous scenes have we not that that's why they eat people to embody that it's out of respect because they have power they have a kind of uh, charisma they want to eat their, their their spirit would come from eating the flesh and they, and they give the they give uh Percy and his son Jack, um, the potion, and you know they're going to be glazed and eaten. And the, uh, Percy turns to his son and says, You know, buck up, um, life is a mystery. Well, isn't and that we've had a, a great journey. Isn't
0: that a fascinating turn that the movie takes? Because, well, it, yes, we see him kind of eaten at the end. I mean, this is not a we, happy or successful ending for Fawcett. We have and yet, to
1: imagine they're being eaten.
0: And yet the tragedy is really more for the wife. I mean, she is left completely distraught by the end of the movie. She's not sure whether her husband and child are alive. They're dead. She's dressed in all of her kind of mourning garb. And she's the one who exits into the jungle. I mean, we, it's almost as if this, uh, you know, the the consumption of Faucet is like his apotheosis, right? Well, well, that's is- right
1: what it it, pro- it proved it proves my point QED that really what he wanted is to be absorbed into this fantastic uh, uh non-victorian um civilization which Uh, he he sees beyond its savagery to its elementalism or something like that. And it's pretty darn elemental when you're getting glazed.
0: We we only have a few minutes left, but I want to make sure to ask you about this movie's uh, representation of class, because this is something that James Gray has also been quite candid about, how one thing he laments in a lot of contemporary Hollywood movies um, is that movies don't really deal with issues of... uh, of class, of kind of class conflict, uh, in the way that he, you know, thinks that movies of old, a, a, an older historical era did, and he sees, you know, Fawcett struggles both at home and abroad, uh, either in the trenches of the Somme or in the Royal Geographical Society hall, when you know everyone is kind of just spewing venom, like childish venom at one another, or as he's, you know, being berated by uh, this, you know, grand Englishman who's accompanied him on his exploration you know he sees this as a story of um of class conflict uh with with faucet kind of straddling all of these different spheres and i wonder if that is something that you picked up on over the course of the movie that you found if not a completely successful treatment maybe a refreshing indication of like the ambition of a director or did it just kind of get washed out over the course of two and a half hours?
1: No, I think it's very much there. I think that's one of its strengths that comes through in the small comments that people make about about uh, Percy Fawcett's own origin. And um, it is... Um and I, and I believe James Gray's previous movie was a movie about immigrants, or it was called yep, The Immigrant. The
0: Immigrant with Marion Cotillard. Yeah, so face. he's
1: very concerned with those issues. And you know, the entire era that this movie really, uh, to give it credit, the, the the era that it opens up to us, this era of great exploration, uh, and, and their, the, 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 you know, Fawcett's last expedition uh, apparently is followed by millions of people because it's being funded by newspapers to sell newspapers. And there are many references to um, uh, the Americans leading an expedition in the Arctic or the Antarctic, um, the the whole business of great explorations in which a team of hardy yeoman Englishmen is led by an upper class guy, and that they pull together uh, to. It's almost as if it's the last gasp of Victorianism and the beginning of a more democratic twentieth uh, century, and it's embodied in the whole genre. Of these uh, adventure films. And I think he, he, that's probably, to me, that's what is really most interesting to this director.
0: We we have to wrap up our conversation now, but I do want to end on something that I didn't think I'd ever end uh, a, a movie review on, and that is a quote from a Rudyard Kipling poem. <laughs> and as you Which know, they quote in the movie Which they, this is the one they quote there's an eighteen ninety-eight poem called The Explorer that uh, that Fawcett's wife kind of writes to him and he reads as he is going on his first expedition. And I think it's so you know, even though it is a little uh I don't know, it strikes me as a little kind of childish and maudlin, it seems so appropriate to like the grand ambitions of this character. Character. And it goes something hidden. Go and find it. Go and look behind the ranges. Something lost behind the ranges, lost and waiting for you. Go. And I think that Gray manages to capture the complicated nature of that call uh, in this movie. However, you know, successful we think Hunnam's performance is, or however long, or kind of <laughs> bland at times this movie is. I think it captures that that ambition to explore in all of its you know, complicated. And, and you're going to
1: end without letting me <laughs> recite uh, Kipling's The Road to Mandalay?
0: <laughs> you can do that as I fade you out. Alan, no, you, maybe you want to give us one?
1: "Of uh, The Road to Mandalay <laughs> where the flying fishes play and the sun comes out of China lying across the bay. Uh, Come back, you British soldier. Come back from Mandalay.
0: See, Pr- Beautiful. Alan, thank you for coming on the Pleasure. show. Pleasure. Thank we you, Tom. We'll talk with you next week and coming up and next, a conversation with Joe Fay and Laura Colella. But first, let's hear a little bit of Ellison Jackson.
2: hungry, would you turn me away? And if I had no money, would you beg me to stay? Please tell me what you seek. Please know that I am weak. There's nothing but the sky. You've expired Then all is what it seems Please tell me what you see
0: Welcome back to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. For the second segment of the show, I'm very excited to welcome Joe Fay and Laura. Laura, how do you pronounce your last name? I should probably ask you right up front.
3: Sure. Colella.
0: Colella. Perfect. Okay. I'm yeah. happy to welcome Joe Fay and Laura Colella um, for a conversation about a few movie-related events that will be happening at Lyric Hall this weekend. Uh, Joe... Oh, boy, I wrote down bookseller. I'm not sure if it's bookseller or book buyer for William Bookseller. Re- bookseller. Well, both, really, <laughs> both. but yeah. Joe, Joe Fay is both a bookseller and a book buyer for William Reese company and a movie programmer at Lyric Hall in Westville. And Laura is a filmmaker currently based out of Vermont, he asked with a question uh, mark.
3: No, Providence.
0: Uh, based out of Providence, okay. Um, yeah. And the director of the 2012 indie comedy Breakfast with Curtis. So Joe and Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for, for hopping on. Thank
4: you thank for thank having us.
0: Okay, so Joe, I'm going to turn to you first. Uh, There are a few events uh, happening at Lyric Hall this weekend. How about could you give us um, an introduction to to both? What's happening on Saturday? What's happening on Sunday?
4: Sure thing. Saturday is the second installment of an annual VHS swap meet and screening day. So we're going to have Lyric Hall, the front room. It's a little different than it was the first time around. So the front room will be set up like a living room. With an old tube TV and a VCR, playing a couple of movies throughout the day, and then the uh, the bar will be open, opens at noon, and then the and the theater is actually where the the VHS swap is going to happen. So we're going to have tables set up all over, uh, all uh, sort of around the perimeter of the floor, and that's where the action will happen. Um, and then,
0: why did you decide to, to switch it up?
4: Because I think I need more room for the the swap meet. Then the screenings and the way we did it before was to sort of cram everybody in that front room and uh, it wasn't as conducive to shopping and trading and talking and and commiserating as it was, as it would be, I think this way. We'll see how it goes. Maybe it'll backfire on me. I don't know. But it's a bigger, the theater space is actually, you know, a bigger, more open space. So I thought, well, let's just line it with tables and throw up some, uh, we'll have music playing throughout except in the front room where the movies are happening. So we'll have music going over the PA in the bar area and in the theater, and then we'll be playing uh, trailers on the screen while we all shop for VHS and trade buttons and and buy T-shirts from Best Video and, Things of that nature.
0: The, so this is the second Magnetic Fest. Uh, That's The first one, you, I think it was about a year and a half ago. A year and, now, and a half ago now, yeah. Uh, back in October of 2015. Right. Uh, how has it changed? Uh, what, what vendors are going to be at, at this one that right. I, either were or, or weren't at the previous one?
4: Yeah, we're going to have, from the people I've heard from, we're going to have three or four of the same vendors as were there for the first time. Um, the the first Magnetic Fest, the, the director and, and a couple of people involved with re, the, docu, the VHS documentary, Rewind This, were there. Uh, they won't be there this time, um, though they send their best. Uh, and then a, we're going to have a few new people, including uh, Vinegar Syndrome, who's one of the sponsors, and Best Video Hamden, uh, who is also one of the sponsors. So Best Video will be there pulling some stuff out of their vault uh, and in their storage space. And I've seen they've posted some things on on social media that... Uh, I can't wait to to see, to be honest with you. And Vinegar Syndrome will be there selling um, not VHS. They they do a little bit of VHS, but they'll be selling their uh, you know their their um, restorations on Blu Ray, and then T shirts and buttons, and you know it's just gonna be a fun day of sort of eighties pop culture.
0: And when when does it open? When does it close again? It started, it,
4: it It's at Lyric Hall on Saturday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, we we also tighten the schedule a little bit because last year it was. It was uh, seven hours long and it was too much. You
0: know. So even though the first Magnetic Fest happened about a year and a half ago, you have done you have been busy in the interim uh, at Lyric Hall, and right. that we had you on a few weeks ago to talk about Strange Cinema, which yep. is kind of a maybe a spiritual brother or sister of this event. And you and Alex cools from Strange Ways right. had a uh, one area where you had kind of vendors selling pins, patches, VHS, and then you were also screening movies. Right. I think in collaboration with Vinegar Syndrome in the back, right. and, and then Alex, I forget the name of the kind of. Pin and Patch Fest. Flair Fair. Flare Fair, yes, yeah. that I went to and enjoyed. Yeah. But um, do you feel like you're, there's any kind of synergy between these events? Do you feel like you're building up a better understanding of, uh, or maybe creating more excitement about these yeah. types of events at Lyric Hall?
4: Definitely, that's what we're, and that's what we're trying to do with Strange Cinema is sort of do Flare Fair. Uh, I think Flare Fair might, I don't want to speak for Alex, but I've heard in the wind, not from him, but I've heard in the wind that it may be twice a year now. Um, I don't know if we could do that with, with Magnetic Fest, though, I have ideas to expand it and uh, beyond VHS to sort of a an analog media fest fair you know, festival celebration, records, you know, movies, etc. I'm not sure we'll do that, but uh, for now, it's a VHS swap or it's a you know, cool stuff swap that that where VHS is the anchor. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think that strange cinema is designed to sort of Keep, keep people coming back to Lyric Hall and reminding them about things like Flare Fair and Magnetic Fest, and also to celebrate the types of things that each celebrates. You know, the the analog media, the the, the patch, the button, the the physical object uh, as as a piece of pop culture and pop culture history.
0: The I I think that may tra- uh, function as a, a bit of a good transition over to the event on Sunday because central to the movie in in uh, that you'll be playing Laura's movie is a kind of a deep bond that is formed around a love of movies. I mean, a, a, a bond right. between two kind of unlikely friends, both generationally and also temperamentally, who, who find <laughs> some, some way to, to communicate and, and really develop a friendship over, um, over physical, digital, uh, media. Um, Maybe, I don't know who wants to answer this question first, but how, um, maybe, Jokey, tell me what is happening on Sunday, sure. and then I'll turn to Laura and maybe have her introduce the movie to Absolutely. us and the listeners of it.
4: Absolutely. So Sunday at 1 p.m. at Lyric Hall again is a free screening, uh, and I should also mention Magnetic Fest is free. Um, and so we have a free screening on Sunday of uh, this... I just c- can't explain how, how much I love this movie. It's this ostensibly coming-of-age story um, but it's so much more uh, about this uh, group of Bohemian, and you know I don't want to say too much. I'll let Laura introduce her own movie. Um, but yeah, it's it's Sunday. It's at uh, it's at Lyric Hall. It's one p.m. It's Breakfast with Curtis.
0: Uh, I, I, okay, I think that's the the ball is teed up for you, Laura. If you could, why don't you tell us a bit about um, what paul thomas anderson described as was it a, an absolute delight of a movie or yeah, it's a, wonder, a, beginning a to wonderful end. blurb from yeah. that director but um can you tell tell me and listeners a bit about uh breakfast for curtis breakfast with okay. curtis Sorry.
3: sure um actually i was wishing uh joe would tell what it was about because for filmmakers like a hard thing to kind of like launch into a, uh, what it's about but um but uh, basically, yeah, it's about a, uh, it. as Joe said, it's ostensibly a coming-of-age uh, film, but I really think of it as a film for grown-ups uh, and, not, and not so much, um, it's not really focused on this um, teenage boy as much as the community of people around him. Right. Um, it, it takes place in two houses, uh, neighboring houses, one is a three-family house with a couple on the first floor, a couple on the third floor, and an elderly woman on the second floor, and then next to them lives a couple who have a very introverted, um, anxious, somewhat, uh, teenage boy who's, he's about 14. And Um, gifted. Yes, and gifted. And, um, at the beginning of the film, we see a flashback from five years ago, basically, where there's a conflict when Jonah was about nine, Uh, um, Jonah's the actor, actually, (laughs) uh, when Curtis was about nine, um, he had a conflict with the guy who was on the first floor next door, basically. And so the first five minutes kind of explodes with this conflict and that created bad blood between the two houses. And then the rest of the film is really like an unfolding and disintegration of that conflict by means of a lot of different inter, you know, uh, relationships and uh, developing sort of um, intertwined relationships between the residents in both of the houses, like all of the residents in those houses. Yeah. Um yeah, so that's how I would describe I think, it. It's a comedy.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I think of it as a coming-of-age story, but not only for Curtis. You know, it's, it's, I think there are multiple char- right. characters in this movie, and but it, it's, it's mainly Curtis and Sid. But they both, right. for the lack of a better term, grow up.
0: Laura, I'm yeah, I'm glad absolutely. that that you made that uh, that slip in, in describing the character's name, saying uh, Jonah instead of Curtis, because this <laughs> movie is and its characters, from what I understand, are very closely linked to your kind of real life experience with your neighbors. and that these are your neighbors, uh, and you know, I was thinking as I was watching this movie. I mean, the one of the um, the kind of central motifs, or maybe uh, uh, kind of. Plot, the few plot mechanics that there are is that this uh, kind of older bookseller and this young kind of musical introverted prodigy, they form a relationship over uh, creating amateurish kind of home movies about the eccentric bookseller character. And there are plenty of, of kind of indie comedies about, you know, teenagers learning about themselves and working through kind of dramas by creating little movies. Usually they're trying to kind of recreate movies they love. I'm thinking of like the Me and Earl and the Dying Girl mo- or the um, Son of Rambo or Be kind of rewind but the movies that are created here are not ones you know people aren't reenacting star wars or or <laughs> you know reservoir dogs or something these are rather um not only are they incredibly kind of personal intimate and experimental movies but they're actually movies that existed kind of independent of your movie could could you tell me a bit about um uh, about who these people are and also how you kind of came to the the kind of short amateurish movies that Sit at the center of breakfast with Curtis.
3: Sure. So um, it's kind of fun when people go to the movie and then they find out afterwards that everyone in the movie who lives in these houses actually live in these houses in real life. But it's you know it's kind of by now it's sort of cast out of the bag. But basically, yeah, everyone that I described who lives in those two houses uh, uh, is in the film playing their role, and we use the two houses as locations. Um, The couple next door actually have two sons, so we used the elder son for most of the film for Curtis at 14, and then we used their younger son, who looks very much like his older brother, as Curtis at nine. Um, And the funny, yeah, I I was working on another project that was a much bigger-budgeted project for, like, five years, and it was, you know, one of those stories where it's like a, you know, it seems like it's about to go, and I had producers attached, and then it all kind of fell apart, and I grew very... um, that would have been my third feature and my most sort of expensive feature. And, like, the, you know, um, the frustration I felt at that point was just like, all right, what can I make for nothing? Like, immediately, I need to make a film. And and I looked around at all the weirdos I live with. And, <laughs> and it just was like, well, yeah, this is great. Our, our houses are interesting. And, and the locate, you know, the yards are beautiful. They're, you know, kind of wild. Gardens and and fountains and you know all kinds of uh, stuff in the yards and and I just um, proposed to them like in June of 2010. What do you guys think if we make this film? And they all were like super psyched and immediately on board. And then I wrote it uh, in July, and then we started shooting in August. So it was a very quick timeline with like zero budget, just me and one or two, sometimes three other people shooting a scene at a given time. I didn't even feed anybody because everybody was like home, so <laughs> I would just schedule shoots. Around. I didn't even give them water, so we just like get, you know scheduled shoots around meals and like when you know over a period of a few weeks, and um, it just worked out really perfectly. And um that's the so so before when I was um, developing the script, I spoke with all the you know my neighbors and said like, what do you think? You know, sort of brainstormed ideas with them, and one of the ideas is that. Um, Jonah and who placed Curtis, the teenager and um, Theo, who placed Sid, the bookseller on the first floor, had actually been making these YouTube videos together. And it was uh, years after an incident that actually left the you know the two houses not speaking to each other, you know mainly because of of uh, really actually not the whole house, but mainly the first floor and the, the neighbors next door. Mm-hmm. Um, because of an incident, so there was a real incident, and then there was this real thing where they were now like, you know, working closely together, making these YouTube videos, and they're not. They're they're basically Jonah filming Theo, and in the movie, it's Curtis filming Sid. Um, so they're they're kind of these sort of like ego pieces for <laughs> for the the Sid character who's making um, sort of just expounding on different topics. He's in the, like. You know, um, discussing memories, or talking about his, um, and they're, they're psychedelic, kind of, and, and, you know, beat sort of um, uh, writing. And, Influences, and yeah. So it's just like a mix of like all these different things that he kind of talks about. And, and Jonah was shooting them in the most like expressive, amazing ways and using, you know, visual effects. And it, they were, they're like brilliant little pieces. And so I, I, in the film, I used little short clips
0: from his videos, and, uh, they become
3: Curtis's videos. And you know, they,
0: they, I know that made sense. <laughs> no, it does. And, and for, you know, as they, for I me, mean, listeners who haven't seen the movie yet um, it's you know they they function so well in regards to what um, Joe was talking about a little earlier about how this movie is a kind of coming of age story for everyone involved and that Curtis is not at the center of every scene by any means I mean there's some you know extended scenes where he does not appear at all and yet the kind of interpolations of these little shorts always brings us back to the central relationship of the movie and not necessarily mm-hmm. and this is just from my interpretation but not to you know remind us that these are the most important characters in the movie, but rather the type of relationship that we see forming through the creation of these videos is what we're supposed to kind of celebrate through the kind of just kind of goofing around over the course of a day over the course of a week in this backyard. I mean, these are kind of informal but intimate relationships between strangers who manage to kind of let down every single guard of theirs to really open up. And I'm I'm curious to ask you, I mean, I think our listeners or people familiar with independent cinema, um, it will it will be pretty understandable that filmmakers without a big budget turn to their friends, their neighbors, their family, non-professional actors to kind of populate their their movies. But I wonder what kind of challenges and benefits there were to working with, you know, a group of people who you knew um, who were kind of living next door, but also asking them to play characters so close to their real-life personalities. Is Is it... Um, was it a, was it ever, was there ever any conflict around saying, you know, someone saying this is not how I see myself and I, I don't want to, or this is, or this is too close to me and I feel uncomfortable or, uh, how, how did you get people to play kind of variations on who they are in a fictionalized environment?
3: Um, I just wanted to, uh, rewind quickly about something else that came up, uh, uh, and then, and then answer your question. But, um, just in terms of what Joe was saying about it being a coming of age tale and, and that, you know, different characters grow up in the process. Um, And the idea of incorporating these clips, too, it's also really about, like, the creative process and and creative projects and and the idea that, you know, this this sort of uh, is a seminal summer for Curtis, but it's really a seminal summer for everybody in the film, and it's kind of the idea that, like, at any time, anybody can, like, transform, you know, their lives and and come together and uh, just, change, what change they, you yeah. Know, what they don't, yeah. What they don't.
4: Like in the middle they of the movie, like, like, you know, in the middle of the movie, there's that scene where you know Sid finally admits he's wrong about something. You know, there's the. <laughs> I, I won't. It's not. I don't think it's. I'll ruin anything by saying, but it's. It involves a swing. You know, any sort of, and it's this moment where you know, and one of the other the characters comments that you know, my gosh, Sid changed his mind about something.
0: And yet, I think the the kind of light touch of this movie is that it uh, those pivots are never like really dwelt upon, right? Someone admits right. a mistake, and then we move on, yeah. kind of fluidly to the next scene. And same with that the revelation uh, of the um, something that the dad character has been doing, right? There's um, a Sort right. of conversation around it, but right. then we just kind of move on into the rest of these characters' lives, and there's something very refreshing about that in a in a cinematic world where there's constant conflict around Revelation.
4: right? Okay.
3: Um, and and just uh, in terms of your question about how people felt about, um, but, you know, every I really wrote with everyone's voice in mind, and people think they're you know real actors, and you know, I kept this project kind of a secret from I have an agent and in california and i didn't tell him about it and i just showed it to him when it was all finished and he was like where did you find those actors like that was you know one of the first things out of his mouth and he was like and when then when i told him he was like what he was like <laughs> couldn't, I just couldn't, just couldn't <laughs> believe great. that you know that that was okay and that was like the hugest compliment for me and for you know for the actors just that people really do find their performances so believable and compelling and and that yeah. that was very very
0: rewarding for me joe how did you come to this movie and, and why did you want to um bring and i understand that this isn't just a screening but that there's going to be some talk back after the
3: yeah
4: yeah event so yeah, and, how, how'd you come and to and this why you going for put it Pizza on? afterwards <laughs> after that so we'll see um yes
3: yeah. well yeah. S- yeah
4: okay good um <laughs> the, i came to this movie it's uh, i'll try to tell the short version um i got a uh, I got a, a tablet that had three G capabilities, so I could watch movies remotely. Well, not just because I could watch rem- movies remotely, but that was one of the uh, one of the, the positive sort of side effects of it. So I'm sitting I'm sitting on the train to New York on uh, on Christmas Day, 2015, and I had just gotten Fandor, and so what I did was search. I love books. I love movies involving booksellers because I work in the I work in the field. And I, I'm, you know, a professional bookseller. So, I always kind of go to new streaming sites and try to find. Are there any movies about booksellers? Fast forward to finding this movie on Fandor, and I watched it, and I was just, I mean, literally, I was. Just, when I was when I wasn't laughing, I was smiling. It was just this this ray of sunshine in, into my movie viewing ah. life. And I I, do, I did something with that movie that I hadn't done since the 90s since like the usual suspects which was when it was over i started it again and i I, because when the usual suspects happened i went wait what what was that and sort of had to go back and try to figure out how it got me and so i did in a very different way i did that with breakfast with curtis it was such it was so such a positive life-affirming you know, experience watching this movie that I just had to do it again. And so, you know, I was doing things for Lyric Hall and I've actually been trying to get Laura down here for a, over a year, a year and a half since, since before I went to work for the Alamo. And now that I'm back here, I wrote her again and I said, can we please do this? Cause I just, I want people to see this movie and people need to see this movie. And there, there is, <laughs> there's this, there is this sort of online groundswell of people who, like have seen this movie and just love it they just and you know people people want I've talked to people who have seen this movie and it's like they just they watch it and they want to be there you know and and I do too and I have lived in a place much like the purple citadel and it's 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 so much fun to be around these types of people and this is a movie that just captures the spirit of them absolutely perfectly
0: well, Laura, I, I want to give the the last word to you, and we only have about a minute left. Um, as you know, as the filmmaker and also as an actor in the movie itself, uh, I wonder how you you think about this movie. Kind of what jumps out at you about Breakfast with Curtis as you reflect on it um, now. I, I mean, the the IMDb date for this is twenty twelve. I imagine you were working on it um, before then, but um, looking back on it these years later. Uh, what what jumps out at you and what, what kind of about that experience informs your current career as a, a filmmaker and, and writer?
3: Well, I just, you know, the response like that Joe had was absolute, that, that, that's really his, you know, hearing responses like that have just made me feel so good about this film and that it is, you know, putting something positive out in the world without being sappy or kind of like uh, sentimental, or so I just you know I just want people to have a good time. It's yeah. fun. It's, it's not cynical. It's not um, ironic. Yeah, snarky. My yeah. only regret is that we don't have VHs. VHS copies
4: of it because that would just perfectly round out the weekend but, oh
0: so, that would land. be great well, I'm, I'm afraid that's I'm we're we're out of time Laura Colella is a filmmaker of, uh, director of Breakfast with Curtis uh, and Joe Fay is among many other things a movie programmer at Lyric Hall check out the Lyric Hall website we will post a link to it on the Deep Focus website at deepfocusradio.com for all of the great things happening there this weekend uh, Laura and Joe thank you so much for coming on the cho- show to chat about uh, these movies
4: yep lauracolella.com by the way yeah. <laughs> see, see you Sunday, Laura.
3: Okay, yeah. See you soon. Uh, Thanks.
4: Bye-bye. Bye bye.
3: Bye. Bye. Bye.